0: Welcome back to Coffee, Eggs and Inspiration. This week, I am joined by the wonderful Shibby Jervis. Welcome, Shibby.
1: Great, thank (laughs) you for having me. I'm able to, you know, essentially navigate my entire career virtually despite COVID, and so there is a lot of beauty of digital. There is a lot of soul in technology that we don't look at. We can yeah. go, if I can high five you right now, Craig, hang on, let's, let me try this. <laughs> I would.
0: Oh, oh, God, it's this side. <laughs> <Exactly. is>
1: it? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Friday, right? Uh, really good to be in your hot scene. This is quite a nice shift, actually, from when we first met. What was it, three years ago at yeah. Madfest when Craig and I we did uh, the keynote on the same stage for a really energized audience. And now we're doing it from our living rooms and conservatories.
0: Yay, <laughs> COVID, uh, right? And, and what a hard act to follow you were on the stage. We're going uh, we're both sort of speakers on the circuit, I guess you'd say. Uh, should be much more. Prominent than me. So, we thought we'd treat this sort of like a, more of a conversation than an interview. Um, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to introduce uh, Shivy because uh, she's far too modest uh, to do it herself. And uh, she may introduce me and, and then we'll go from there. So, uh, Shivy Dervis, a futurist, a speaker, um, an international speaker, a, a founder uh, of uh, FutureScope, FutureScape, I think, uh, 248. Uh, and uh, Tech Round's top ten BAME entrepreneurs, amongst many other accolades, you can find Chevy online. I will link it below and put cards up here and wherever, wherever it comes out on YouTube, uh, etc. But I've seen uh, Chevy talk about her uh, top of interest uh, live on more than one occasion. Uh, sometimes live, sometimes uh, on video, and she's yeah. wonderful. And I feel very privileged. So that's Great Chevy. Guy.
1: Look who's talking. So on my right, your screen left, is Craig Fenton, who I uh, met with and clicked with instantly three years ago at a fantastic event. He is Director of Strategy and Operations at Google UKI and all around, I would say, innovation maverick, really. What I love about you, Craig, is that your thinking is extremely original, and that's why... I wanted to do this with you and vibe with you online and do this podcast. And I mean, you wear many hats, A, at work, but I would say in the industry, you are seen as one of those people that are really humble, despite this crazy wealth of knowledge that you have. And so I'm glad we're doing something together today.
0: Oh, I feel very uncomfortable. I don't like being the centre of attention, but thank you very much. It's very kind. Let's start. We're both actually parents as well. We live and work in the technology industry. But we're parents. I've got a couple of teenage sons, and actually one of them's got his girlfriend here uh today. Um Chibi, you've got some younger children, right?
1: Three and a half and five, yeah. So no girlfriends and, and boyfriends just yet.
0: Uh that you know of. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so um apart from being practitioners, we sort of grapple with uh with these issues of uh of the uh, interface or the attention and, and helpfulness and all of that rolled into one between technology and humanity. Screen time is the number one thing for me. You know, I've, I've always struggled with it. We have limits in our household, harder to enforce now. They're a bit older. They're 18 and 15. Uh, Gaming is a big thing. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes gets in the way of family relationships. So it's something I think about a lot as a parent. And we certainly think about that. Uh, you know, it's a company at Google as well. How about you, Shaleen?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's well, it's a fascinating one because I've been invited on BBC to debate this a number of times. One time was prior to having kids, okay? So I went on there and I said, look, I don't have kids yet, but um, I can give you a point of view as a technology futurist where I study brain chemistry. I look at the intersection between neuroscience and what makes a stick. All these incredible innovations coming from the digital world and then trying to map out for governments, for organizations, for startups, uh, a a real path to here are the tools that I think we'll use and the ones that will actually go the distance. And so within doing that, actually, all of this stuff lives online. Mm -hmm. So how do you use it if you're having to be overly conscious about screen time? But you're absolutely right. There is a difference between head down all the time, speaking like this, or actually, worse yet, people sitting around a table messaging each other, which I have seen seen young people do sometimes. Um, And I think one of the things I say in my talks, Craig, is, you know, it's about time that we find a hybrid sort of reality where we're not just heads down on our devices. I think what digital should do is be this enabler to lift our heads up and, God forbid, prompt us to have a real conversation, even right now, even though this is a screen, we're still having a proper live conversation. And I do think that from a health point of view as well, being buried in the virtual world isn't going to be as beneficial. Um of course COVID means that you've had to do we've had to do that. But there is now this interesting shift where even as we're becoming more digital, digital is starting to actually start to, I think, encode and decode human human needs far more than ever before. So, uh, a bit of reverse digital engineering happening here, which I think will allow us to balance what we get from this, which is a great deal. The interactivity you get from there can be fantastic. And my son's learned Spanish. I'm able to, you know, essentially navigate my entire career virtually despite COVID. And so there is a lot of beauty of digital. There is a lot of soul in technology that we don't look at. And I think people just go, oh, my gosh. If, if someone's you know, been on their laptop for X number of hours, it, it's bad. And I think that's really dangerous because a lot you can get out of it. But we've got to have the human contact and you know, the tactile energy as well. Being able to, I think there's a piece of research that says, Craig, that if you humans need up to 16 instances of touch a day and you think, really? Oh, my God, have I had my quota? Um, and, you know, things like that. So we mustn't forget that we are tactile feeling creatures as well.
0: Yeah, I, I, lo- I love the way you talk about technology because there's always that that thing about the brain chemistry and the psychology of being human and, and the way that you sort of uh, talk about it in that context. I think it's so important. And look, it's been a godsend. I mean, screen time, I can't really complain about it. My son, who's 15, he's homeschooling at the moment. We're filming this in April 2021, so we're still kind of in lockdown here in London. Uh, and he talks every night in these sort of server rooms in a, a game streaming environment, to his friends. And it's been a social outlet. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would be much better if they were in the back garden, of course, but um, better than not talking to, to people, right? That's it. It
1: is the next best thing. That's an excellent point.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and you're a futurist, right? This is, you, you're a, a renowned commentator on where it's all going. What do you think are some of the big themes uh, that you see and that you're excited about?
1: So one of the things I speak about really often, Craig, is uh, what I call human perception AI. And the technical name for this is effective computing. That's effective with an A. And the MIT started doing research into this years ago, and I've been following it for five, six years. And I try and sort of demystify some of these fascinating things that I tried and I test at labs and being able to, through my own lab, just make it really palatable. And so I think human perception AI, think of it as emotionally aware software, where we finally start to see a lot of the digital tools that we use, whether it's an app or a website, and Google are already on this, you guys are absolutely progressive in this already, is able to just understand situational context far more than some of the stuff we see today, such that the interaction between the actual human and the other end um, and the software, the algorithm, the code isn't as clinical as it still can be with certain tools and services that we do use now. And all of this comes back to the digital economy. You know, if you're locked out of the digital economy, if you don't have access to the internet, you don't have the know-how to use it, then actually it's not just, you know, trivial. It, it It can cause serious drawbacks in your life. So if we have software that can start to perceive, understand, and then respond to our human emotions, understand the wider situational context, I think that's going to take us to a different level. And we are seeing that rolled out more and more with either virtual assistants and bots who actually understand why the situational context context and the nuances of human conversation. So not just a, if this, then that, because sometimes you come away from this conversation with a bot going, I'll never get that one hour of my life back, Um, but that's shifting. But then you also see it in education in um, adaptive learning software that can flex to suit human needs. And it's not a one size fits all. So workplace and educational learning as well, adaptive learning systems will be tremendous. And then lastly, um, something I call AR commerce. So the shift from e-commerce to AR commerce, I call it. And that's using augmented reality to grow our businesses online, to sell, to be able to bring a concept, a piece of information about your brand or yourself to life. Uh, without someone having to physically be in a store. And of course, Gobe has accelerated that. So you hold up your phone, either hover it over a QR code, like we all know how to do, or the brand's logo. And it pushes the digital experience to your phone such that I can now suddenly see you, Craig, demonstrating something to me, your product or service, but as though you were stood in my room or you were perched on my table. Um, And I'm able to see, I think, data as well visualized in 3D. And, you know, we actually absorb and retain four to six times more information with this particular method, which is why I think this is another big area to watch.
0: Well, it's a really inter- interesting uh, aspect that, that you raise in a way, if you think about it, you know, the, the phone or the screen that we're looking at now, uh, the TV screen, they're sort of rather incorporeal. They're very external uh, to us, aren't they? And it, it's a, it, it, In many ways, it's a clunky interface, but... Yet there are there are trends uh, that are making uh, the experience of interacting digitally much more human. My uh, parents are in their late seventies, and they're um, inc- incredibly uh, intimidated and frightened by this, but they're very good using their voice and interacting with a uh, uh, with a um, uh, with an assistant of, of some sort, uh, and uh, they they even tried uh, vr uh, the other day and, and oh, found nice. interesting, quite interesting because it's quite intuitive isn't it sort of transports you to different places Correct.
1: exactly um, you hit the nail on the head it's actually you're right how do you create that blended world where you need not forsake one for the other it, i don't think it needs to be this huge fight between on and offline or digital and real you know, your digital can have elements of real as it does now your real can have healthy elements of digital and i think that's actually where the true value and sweet spot lies
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? You call it um, AR commerce, I think, is is the phrase that you you had at augmented reality commerce. In the early days, we called it e-commerce. And I wonder whether the E is even necessary now, particularly in COVID, because, you know, brands have had to adapt, haven't they, retailers? And we're all in some way in this sort of very hazy mesh uh, that's somewhere between the two. And there's not really the online business and the offline business. The two are, are coming together big time. Exactly. Um, yeah, wonderful, uh, wonderful direction of travel. I think. And what what about? Let's let's get deep here for a moment. Um, the relationship between humanity and technology, you yeah. know, is there's, uh, there's a ton of news, both deeply negative, uh, deeply positive, and helpful. Um, you know, it's all of that sort of smashed together. Um, how do you see uh, technology? Uh, in uh, in a world where humanity is advancing as mm. as, as, as technology? What, what is that tension? Uh, that tension?
1: Yeah. I, and, see, the thing is that, that, that you've got to have the healthy tension points. You've got to have those points where there is that friction, um, you know, otherwise you're not doing something right. So I would say, you know, the <laughs> of that would worry me. Um, I disagree with dystopian points of view, and that's why I often we'll get on stage and say, okay, you know, I'm a futurist, but guess what? I'm one of those really hopeful ones where I'd rather tell you what could go well than lament everything that's going to go wrong. Although the research I put out through my lab is very measured and it does give you the caveats and give you the warnings that here's what you need to be aware of. So for example, the ethical oversight of these advances is as important as the speed at which some of these great new advances are rolled out that are helping us, for example, earn, learn better, to be able to get around mobility, infrastructure, smart cities, smart everything, really. But you know, you have to then stop and say, is it actually augmenting our human potential? And that's sort of the measure I use, or in a way, I suppose, the criteria as a futurist, is I look at, A, is this human-led innovation? And you might think it sounds silly to say human-led innovation because surely all innovation should be human-led, But you and I both know that isn't always the case. Often human needs are retrofitted into the equation. But we're now seeing almost a movement of sorts, I think, coming from what I like to call the basement founders, you know, the people that aren't necessarily big mainstream names or always in the press, but the real sort of maverick inventors who are making sure we factor in actual elevation of human potential, augmenting our actual skills, our needs, our desires, our human wants. At the outset itself, so that when you use a particular tool or service or whatever it is, this advance then is a catalyst and it's an enabler. And so I actually think that relationship isn't as dystopian or fragmented as we think. We've just got to make sure that ethical oversight and regulation, for instance, catches up to it and almost moves in tandem.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I find myself standing here. I'm searching for a point that we can debate, right? We have a difference of opinion, but I actually completely agree with you uh, on this. I'm also a technology optimist, yeah. Uh, and I issue the, you know, I, I reject the dystopian view of the world. Like any tool, of course, uh, technology can be put to good use and bad use, uh, and it's important to be intentional and uh, and to. Bring in thoughtful uh, regulation where that's required as well. Um, well
1: and so, so yeah, because because overregulation, as you and I well know, can also choke and stifle innovation. So you're mm-hmm. absolutely right when you say you know healthy and measured as well.
0: Um, absolutely healthy and measured as well. And, you know, we think a lot about this in the in the AI businesses that we have in, in Google Deep Mind is, is one of them here in London, of course. And, and we have a, a an ethical set of standards that we adhere to. It's, it's sort of like the constitution uh, of the business. And I think that's really uh, one of the founders, in fact, of, of DeepMind, I think, is a philosophy uh, graduate. And he wow. thinks very deeply uh, about the uh, the human end of uh, putting technology in its helpful, augmentative way uh, to, to good work and, um, and being very yeah. Um, determined about that. Well, we can uh, go, if I
1: can high five you right now, Craig. Hang on, let's let me try this. <laughs> I would
0: oh, high five. Oh God, it's this yeah, side. Exactly. It? <laughs> Everything's switched over. You're, you're much
1: exactly. more used to
0: this than, than me. Yeah, I mean, we talk about technology, isn't it? I, I, I did a TED talk the other day, uh, and the topic was um, technology. Uh, um, humanity in the techno- uh, in the digital age, I think it was. Yeah. I can't even remember the title. But the yeah. thesis of the, the talk uh, was that um, the digital age is more than ever a human age. And, and you know, you talk about this a lot. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it means that technology in and of itself has no value, actually. It's much the much application
1: I, yeah, of I love that. that.
0: Technology. Digital age is a human age. I love that. that. Yeah. I mean, so it's the application of technology that has value. And guess who decides that? It's us. Uh, it, it's us in the design process. It's us in the uh, in the application process. And uh, the uh, possibilities, I think, the really exciting possibilities mm-hmm. of advanced digital technology are more about harnessing that technology, as you say, should be in this augmentative way. Um, to create really exciting human um, relationships and human possibilities. And I really, truly believe that. I think it's uh, absolutely heading in that direction. Though we both know that um, although uh, probably talent uh, for sure is evenly spread, opportunity is not, and nor is uh, access to digital technology. Talk to me about that. Yeah.
1: So oh, don't get me started. How much time do we have? Um, well, so, so I talk a lot about the digital divide because it's a sort of invisible fracture that doesn't always make the press. A lot of folks that I talked about are like, wow, I didn't know this existed. And yet, you know, some of the stats are absolutely alarming that almost half of the world actually don't have reliable or any Internet access. I mean, this baffles, right? The World Economic Forum, I think, pegs this figure to be 3.7 billion people are locked out of the digital economy. And by digital divide, Craig, I mean the sort of social fracture that it's causing between the digital haves and digital have-nots. And this is this is not who has a better phone. This is do you even have access to the internet in the first place? So it takes the shape of three things. One is access to connectivity. Or being able to even connect to the internet, a lot of folks are locked out of it. A because either they can't afford it, so socioeconomic reasons, or because they're in a rural area that doesn't have reliable access, um, or three, in, for, for many reasons, that it's simply dead and unavailable where they are. And we actually don't even realize this. But you know, talking about the villages in India, we're talking about areas in Costa Rica and places like that. Um, and the second is. They don't have the hardware to connect to it. So the tablet, the phone that we take for granted, not as easy for everyone to gain access to, especially socioeconomically. And the third is you can't just close the physical digital divide. You've also got to close it with knowledge. So it can take the form of those who I think have difficulty actually gaining that digital literacy to use this connectivity in the first place with you know just having the ICT knowledge. And you're locking out those experiencing poverty, the one million, sorry, one billion globally disabled, migrants, the elderly, all stand to suffer the most because of this. Apparently, women also suffer disproportionately. And, Craig, lastly, it amazes me that, um, as it turns out, in this last year with the lockdown, more than one billion children across the globe were, and many countries still are, absolutely locked out of virtual education this year. So the ramifications are. Far wow, wider than we think. It goes into accessing social welfare services, managing your household amenities, being part of civic life, skilling in job opportunities, and so that connectivity is a gateway for that.
0: Absolutely. So, yeah, you know, what a what a stat, right? Four billion out of eight eight billion, uh, you know, only have access to the talk that we're doing now and everything that we take for granted. And actually, even yeah. that's not equal if you're on a sort of simple phone with low. And with this, uh, you, you won't be watching, you won't be streaming video, uh, will you? That all sounds a bit negative. We can't end on a negative note. No. Um, there must be some optimism. What can we look forward to?
1: Yeah, well, th- there's a lot we can do with that. And that's one of the things I've been campaigning for with governments and with organizations is, hey, here are some radical breakthroughs or emerging technologies that have the potential to start really shifting this conversation and, and I'll focus on infrastructure initially. So already there's a viable solution, which is satellite broadband. And this is launching small satellites into orbit that are over 60 times closer to Earth than traditional ones, by the way. And I know SpaceX is a slightly controversial company, but their Starlink project is actually a low latency one, which means um, less time between one data point reaching one point to the other. And they were already in beta stage And uh, in February this year. The other one is next-generation wireless. So yes, there's 5G. There's also Wi-Fi 6. And this stuff can be a boom for rural or remote areas. So the University of Surrey, for example, have a 6G innovation center already. And you've got open roaming technology from companies that would actually bond both 5G and Wi-Fi channels. And this service would be as good as fiber links. Um, Then you've got agile networks. And by this, I mean, it's not just a fancy phrase. It actually allows us to tweak infrastructure while giving higher speed. And so optical connectivity, all of this stuff is, it may sound really boring, like it's dumb pipes, telco stuff, but it isn't. It's actually very sexy. It's actually going to be breathtaking in terms of what it can do. Um, And then finally, Craig, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I guess device affordability is also really important, isn't it? And the Web Foundation found that actually patents and royalties on software and hardware can actually jack up and increase the cost of a smartphone to an end user like you and I by as much as 30%. So all these great developments in engineering and materials, again, not stuff we always think of as very cool, but they are, are actually resulting in the cost of smartphones decreasing rapidly and making them more affordable. I'm seeing this unfold in my home country of India, where I'm originally from already.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and it's easy to to forget that we live in uh, in London and the in the UK. Um, that's it. A lot of viewers uh, that, that watch my channel are in the US. Uh, it, we take for granted a thousand uh, dollar smartphone, right? Yes, and that's an incredibly that, you know that's a very very expensive computer, and uh, you know the reality uh, in areas that you talk about in India and elsewhere is that. you know, at the absolute outset is probably the the maximum uh, that most people could afford, and um, it needs to be good enough to access the information that that you and I take for granted at the same time. I must tell you, you talk about SpaceX and satellite broadband, which is a fascinating area, and I love Elon Musk and what he's doing in his vision. Um, There's another very exciting uh, company that's doing uh, private uh, launch of satellites. Uh, called Rocket Lab, and I'm going to be parochial here. This is a New Zealand company um, oh, with split headquarters between uh, New Zealand and California, and they've launched, I think, 96 satellites already. Uh, so there's two big players actually in the private space that are really great. putting that infrastructure into uh, into space. A shout out to the Rocket Lab.
1: Ooh, I've got to lift these guys up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The electron rocket, I think, is uh, is what they call it. Yeah, I mean, so um, uh, there's, there, there are notes of optimism here. Um, you know, as, as parents and, and people, of course, we, we struggle with exactly the same questions that most people talk about and, and, and struggle with themselves. Yet we see the uh, possibilities, the augmentative uh, possibilities, the helpfulness uh, of technology. Um, there's some wonderful Developments that you've so uh, eloquently articulated there that are going to make those um, uh, possibilities more and more um, accessible, uh, you know, to to lower that or uh, narrow that digital di- divide. Um, but also, uh, I think we share the point of view as technology optimists that it's um, it's going to be uh, okay, and and this is uh, this is something that's going to be helpful, and certainly my strong view is that uh, the digital age is more than ever a human age and uh, it will increasingly become so as the technology, as you uh, rightly say, becomes much more organic in the way that we uh, interact uh, with it. Um, Absolutely, close, yeah. Closing thoughts from you, Shibi, as we, as we close the, uh, the <laughs> session. What closing
1: thought would be, it's actually going to be easier to stay human in a digital age or even stay digital in a human age, as you put it, which is a fantastic way to put it, uh, than we might think. So there there are a whole bunch of everyday citizens like us out there who aren't necessarily working in, let's say, technology innovation. It is so much harder for folks like that, and I completely understand it, to be able to see that you don't need to forsake profits and purpose when you think about uh, tech startups, tech giants, I think a lot of places are doing fantastic things that we just don't know of. And so there's a little bit of, um, I suppose, awareness here, but absolutely, I think the future, and it's my job to forecast and scenario plan. I don't just put my finger up in the end, and go, ooh, I think that's gonna happen by the way. So it, it isn't this weird sort of tech crystal ball or anything, but I look at you know human needs and actually, that's universal. Human needs don't go out of fashion. They aren't a trend, they drop in and out. That's almost a constant. And I think our need for connection, interaction, for that, you know, be able, to be able to use our intuition for all of this stuff, I don't think you're going to be able to have an AI system that can replicate human consciousness or empathy. Some people think there might be, but they're talking about 50 years from now, and even then I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so actually, I think there is a place for keeping people in the equation. And we are doing it and we are headed in the right direction. So I think we're actually in a great place.
0: Human, human needs uh, human needs won't go out of fashion. I love that line. What a great uh, note to end on. Uh, Chevy Jervis, it's been a real joy uh, sharing some time with you on, on the screen here. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. <laughs>